You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Welcome. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, joining me in segments two and three today is Mr. Lawrence Reed. Um, Larry is the president emeritus of one of my favorite organizations, the Foundation for Economic Education. Their website is fee or fee.org. Um, there's some really good resources available there. And we're going to talk to Larry today about the similarities between ancient Rome and the United States today and what you can learn from studying history when it comes to economics and finance is really amazing, in my view. And we're also going to explore a rather controversial subject. We're going to ask, was Jesus a socialist? So stay tuned for that. You know, this past week in the markets, uh, some of the big news was that gold is now selling for more than $1,500 per ounce. And the yield on the U.S. Treasury bond fell to nearly 2%. Now, if you stop and think about it, and you ask yourself this question, would you loan the U.S. government money for 30 years for 2% interest? Well, as crazy as that may sound to some of you, stay tuned for the last segment of today's program, because in the country of Denmark now, the country's third largest bank is offering negative interest on mortgages, which means that, yes, you take out a mortgage and you pay back less than you borrowed. Yes, you get paid to a certain extent to buy a house. Now, that may not be a good thing. I'll explain that in the last segment of today's program. But as I explained last week on the program, we are in a period of time where a lot of what we're seeing, financially speaking, just doesn't make sense. I mean, negative interest rates on a mortgage, loaning the U.S. government money for 30 years and only collecting 2% interest, that stuff just wouldn't have made sense a few short years ago. Now, because of this trend and the direction that we're heading, for several years now, if you've been a longtime listener to the program, you know that I've been suggesting to many folks that they talk with a financial professional and think about and consider accumulating gold and silver since world economic fundamentals favor precious metals, in my view. Now, this isn't so much because metals are worth more but because there's massive devaluation of world currencies taking place. And given existing public debt levels around the globe, in other words, when you stop and think about and look at how much government debt exists around the globe, I expect that this trend will continue, and I expect that metals and other tangible physical-type assets, assets with intrinsic value, to be a good place to store wealth in order to preserve purchasing power. Now, over the long haul, this has proven to be a good strategy. Let's just take a quick gold example to make the point. In 2000, calendar year 2000, just 19 years ago, gold was selling for about $290 an ounce. Today, as of last week, gold is selling for more than $1,500 per ounce. Now, in U.S. dollar terms, you would say that gold has increased in price or in value by about 500%. 
It was $290 an ounce back in 2000. It's about $1,500 an ounce today. That's about a five-fold or 500% increase. Now think about this for a minute. If you had chosen to store $1,500 worth of wealth in the form of cash starting in 2000, today you'd still have $1,500, but that $1,500 would buy a lot less. Imagine for a moment that you took $1,500 19 years ago, you stuck it in your sock drawer at home, and now you pulled it out and you want to spend $1,500, you're going to buy a whole lot less than you would have bought then. On the other hand, had you stored that $1,500 in five ounces of gold, today, what was $1,500 19 years ago would be worth more than $7,500. Now, here's another example just to make the point. Some of you are probably car people. I have to confess, I have always liked wheels. Now, the base price of a 2000 Ford Mustang Coupe in 2000, 19 years ago, $16,700. By comparison, the present base price of a new Ford Mustang Coupe is $26,395. Now, this is the base model. On a nominal basis, in terms of U.S. dollars, the base price of a Mustang over 19 years increased about 58%. However, let's price the Ford Mustang Coupe in gold. And when we do that, we get a completely different picture. In 2000... As I said, the base price of the Ford Mustang Coupe was $16,700. It took 57 ounces of gold to buy the base model of the Ford Mustang Coupe. Gold was $290 an ounce, so 17, or 16700 divided by 290 means it would have taken about 57 ounces of gold to buy the base model Ford Mustang Coupe. Today, Gold is $1,500 an ounce. It takes less than 18 ounces of gold to buy a base model Mustang. Now, let's just say that you didn't take your 57 ounces of gold in 2000 to buy the Ford Mustang Coupe. Instead, you just held on to your 57 ounces of gold. If you did, today, you'd have enough to buy three Mustangs and still have about $5,000 left over. So here's my question. Where was the best place to store your economic energy? Now, if you think about what money is, money is a place to store your economic energy until you're ready to deploy it. I've shared this definition with you previously here on the program. You go to work, you make money. You expend economic energy to get that money. And once you get the money, you have a decision to make. You can deploy it or spend it now, or you can wait and deploy it later and spend it later. If you're putting money in an IRA or a 401k or some other type of savings account, you are making a conscious decision to not spend or deploy your economic energy presently. You're going to wait and deploy it in the future. So the question is, where should you store that economic energy? And over the long term, over many time frames, certainly not every time frame, and certainly not over many shorter time frames, 
But over the long term, gold has often been a better place to preserve purchasing power than U.S. dollars, and in some cases, it's even been better than stocks. Now, I think what you're seeing behind this rally in gold is that the rest of the world is now waking up to this fact. In fact, as I reported here on the program about a month ago, the Bank of International Settlements, which is the central bank of all central banks, it's owned by 60 world central banks, earlier this year, they changed their reserving rules. Central banks now have the option to reserve assets in gold. Up to this change, which occurred in March, central banks could reserve in cash or government bonds. Now, it's cash, government bonds, or gold. So there is more demand for gold. There's more demand for physical assets. Let me give you one more example before the break. In 2000, the S&P 500, which is a very broad stock index, was at about 2,200. Today, the S&P 500 is at about 3,000. That's an increase of a little bit more than a third, a little more than 33% in terms of U.S. dollars. By contrast, as we've already discussed, gold has increased by about 500% in terms of U.S. dollars over that same time frame. According to Charlie Bolello, over the past 20 years, gold has outperformed Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway has returned 387%. Gold has returned about 500%. Now, my forecast is for this trend to continue. Prices may pull back a bit, but over the long term, as I'll talk about in the last segment of today's program, I believe the trend is clear. Now, I would encourage you to learn more. I would encourage you to protect yourself. Uh, we do educational events every month on this topic, as well as maximizing Social Security and minimizing taxes on your retirement accounts. You can go to rla.socialsecuritydinner.com to get information about our next event. That's rla.socialsecuritydinner.com. I'll be back after these words with Larry Reed. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen, and joining me on today's program is returning guest, uh, Larry Reed. Larry is the uh, President Emeritus of FEE.org. That's the Foundation for Economic Education. If you are not familiar with that organization's terrific work, I would encourage you to go to the website and check it out. Um, Larry does a lot of speaking, does a lot of writing. He has uh, articles posted each week on uh, the Foundation for Economic Education's website. Again, that's FEE.org. And uh, Larry, welcome back to the program. Hey, thank you, Dennis. It's uh, always a pleasure. I appreciate your having me back. Well, you... Uh, Recently, Larry, we were chatting a bit before we uh, went on the air uh, and recorded this, that uh, you did a video for Prager University titled, Was Jesus a Socialist? And that's certainly a hot topic today when uh, socialism seems to be becoming mainstream. Uh, give the listeners just a premise of the video, and then we'll dig in a bit. <laughs> 
Okay. Yeah, the Prager University video really did well, which uh, is an indicator of just what you said, uh, Dennis, <laughs> that there's a lot of interest in this topic. It, I think on YouTube alone, it's a, at about 1.2 million views already, and it's only been up uh, uh, less than a month. Uh, the uh, main uh, argument that I raise in the video, as I've done in a number of writings on this subject, is that nothing that uh, uh, defines socialism uh, today as we know it, central planning of an economy or forcible redistribution of wealth or government ownership of the means of production, none of those things has any uh, sanction or recommendation or endorsement in the words of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. In fact, uh, he talks about uh, uh, defending property rights. He, uh, through parables and, and other parts of the New Testament, makes it plain that uh, people should not steal, that uh, no cause justifies the use of force against another person except in self-defense. Uh, and yet socialism is really all about force. I often say if it's voluntary, it's not socialism because it's always uh, seeking to use government power to push people around, take their stuff, uh, and it presumes to know to whom uh, it should be given. Uh, there's no, no reference whatever in the words of Jesus Christ that would suggest he would be supportive of what we today uh, understand to be socialism. So, Larry, let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Would you take the opposite uh, approach and say that Jesus was a capitalist? Well, those terms, socialism, capitalism, really have modern connotations. They uh, weren't around at the time uh, of, of uh, Jesus' life. So it, it would be, uh, I think, a bit, uh, it would be a stretch uh, to to use those terms and try to label uh, Jesus uh, either way. Uh, I can say that the principles he espoused are far more compatible with what we understand as capitalism today uh, than they would be of, of socialism. He was a man of peace. He was a man of, uh, of free will. He was a man who wanted you to do things, the right things uh, from your heart, not at gunpoint. Uh, and he never called for those things that uh, uh, we define today as socialism. He was for freedom and, and uh, the freedom of uh, individuals to exchange uh, in a, the world of commerce. Uh, so that would uh, certainly make him much more sympathetic, I think, to what we understand as capitalism than it would of socialism. Well, Larry, you know, you, we're using the terms uh, socialism, uh, socialist, and, and uh, one of the things I know that uh, uh, Foundation for Economic Education does is educate young people on uh, personal responsibility and uh, a number of other uh, admirable things. And I, I think that maybe the whole term of socialism is maybe misunderstood by a lot of particularly young people that seem to be embracing it. So how would you define socialism? Well, you're right. A lot of people seem to think that uh, socialism is nothing more than wanting to help people. But you can do that under capitalism. Uh, <laughs> the difference is that under one, you do it uh, of your own resources and voluntarily, and in the other, socialism, you do it uh, at the point of a gun because the government tells you and the government does it for you. Uh, remember that Jesus uh, tells the story of the Good Samaritan who comes upon a man uh, desperately in need along the road. And the reason we regard uh, that Samaritan as a good one 
is not because he responded to the man by saying, well, you need to see your social worker or let me find out if the emperor has a program for you uh, or just walk away from it. it. No, he's good because he chose to help the man of his own free will and with his own resources. He didn't draft anybody to participate in, in the process of assistance. Um, so uh, socialism is by definition the use of political force to either centrally plan an economy or to redistribute wealth or to uh, grant to government the power of control, if not ownership, of the means of production. Uh, and if you consider it in that light, you won't find anything in the New Testament that suggests uh, that, that, that Jesus was saying that's the way to go. And, and Larry, I think this is maybe just a touch off topic, but, but related, uh, you know, is there ever, has there ever been an example, uh, historically speaking, that a socialist society has prospered in your study and in your, in your research? Uh, I'm not aware of one. Now, sometimes you'll find a socialist society or a semi-socialist society that, at least for a time, seems to be doing well. It may be simply eating its seed corn. Uh, which for a while allows you maybe even to have a few banquets, but uh, it, it mortgages the future. Uh, it means uh, trouble down the road. Oftentimes, a semi-socialized country uh, seems to be doing well because, not because of the socialism it has, but because of the capitalism it hasn't yet destroyed. It's capitalism that ultimately pays the bills uh, for the socialism that a country may have. Socialists have no theory of wealth creation. They just have theories about uh, how to take it and what to do with it once they've got the loot. So, Larry, just a moment ago, you, you used the uh, story from the New Testament, uh, the parable, actually, about the Good Samaritan, uh, who used his own resources to care for, um, as I recall the parable, uh, someone that really he should have, have hated. Um, uh, b because of the 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 I guess the, the the racial racial tensions that existed at the time. So, is there any evidence that a capitalistic society, maybe uh, with with lower tax rates, is more likely to respond in the manner of the Good Samaritan, or am I am I stretching a bit here? Well, keep in mind that though I'm an advocate for capitalism, <clears throat> I don't think uh, uh, that it's it, that it's everything that uh, personal character ultimately is, is the most important thing in the world next to your uh, uh, spiritual matters. And uh, so capitalism plus a strong character, and capitalism in many cases actually helps to reinforce strong character uh, because it makes you want to serve others. That's the way you get ahead, by providing something of value to someone else. Uh, I'm not aware of any place where socialism actually leads to general and lasting prosperity. Uh, but capitalism does that all the time. We have endless examples of it, including the history of this country, including uh, places like Hong Kong, which went from just an impoverished rock with little in the way of resources to one of the Asian tiger economies, uh, largely through freedom, free markets, capitalism. Many such examples in history, but uh, socialism just doesn't have any. Uh, examples of that nature at all. So, Larry, going back to uh, the video, um, and incidentally, 1.2 million views in two weeks tells you what a hot topic this is. Um, what do you think um, Jesus would observe from today's political environment in the United States? I think he would be appalled in many respects and for many reasons because he would see that uh, people often are... Uh, 
uh, not exhibiting a, a kind of brotherly love and understanding and respect for the views of others, but instead are angrily spouting uh, uh, myths and misconceptions, and uh, and and often uh, stigmatizing people based upon uh, the group that they're in. Uh, I mean, we have a kind of income bigotry, you might say, evidenced in the presidential contest already with candidates falling over themselves to condemn an entire class of people they regard as, quote, wealthy, as if they're all evil by very definition. Uh, Jesus would never support that. He would look in the heart of each individual person, and he he would recognize that some rich people are good, some are bad, just as uh, is the case with the poor. Uh, but he wouldn't demonize an entire class of people simply because uh, of the uh, level of income or material possessions they have. And Larry, when you take a look at this uh, th- this trend, this trend towards socialism, to, to some extent anyway, um, in the United States, um, do you think this trend will ultimately gain strength, and 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 we're going to end up there, given some of the economic conditions that that exist? That maybe we'll talk about a bit in the next segment. Or do you think that at a certain point people are going to wake up and say, wait a minute, this doesn't work. We need to uh, go back to more of a a true form of capitalism. Well, I have no doubt that at some point, uh, when that might be, I don't know, at some point people will say, uh, hey, we've learned our lesson. This is really nonsense that you don't eat your seed corn and and demonize the successful and the productive and expect uh, wealth and prosperity to flow. Uh, the big question in my mind is, well, how far down that path might we go before people put uh, two and two together and realize how harmful it is? I'm an optimist. I'm hoping that people will come to their senses before too much uh, harm and destruction occurs. But uh, uh, sooner or later, people will learn their lesson, uh, even if it has to be learned uh, very painfully. Well, if you're just joining us, we're chatting today with uh, Larry Reed. Uh, Larry is uh, President Emeritus of Fee.org. That's the Foundation for Economic Education. And uh, Larry, for those uh, who may not be familiar with the work of uh, FEE or the Foundation for Economic Education, we've got uh, just maybe a couple minutes left in this segment. Um, I love the work that you guys do. And just for our listeners that may not be familiar with the organization, could you fill them in? Okay. Uh, the Foundation for Economic Education, or FEE, its website again is fee.org, where you can learn a lot of what we do and see uh, daily content posted all seven days of the week, uh, is focused on young people in particular, high school and college age. And even within that demographic, we're focused on young people who haven't heard much about ideas of individual liberty, private property, free enterprise, the free market, and personal character. And through articles on the website, uh, through uh, videos, through free online uh, courses that are downloadable, through events all over this country and abroad, uh, we present these ideas in compelling and persuasive ways. Uh, We ultimately want to see young people uh, have an understanding of uh, what it means to live uh, a free and responsible life uh, in a free society. Uh, That's our purpose, and we are trying at every turn to find better ways to do that. Well, I would encourage the listeners to check it out. The website, again, is FEE or fee.org. Uh, it's a terrific organization, also worthy of your support. I would encourage you to consider that as well. I will return after these words with my special guest, Mr. Larry Reed. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am Dennis Tubergen, and I am joined on today's program by special guest Larry Reed. Larry is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, FE.org. He spends an, uh, an amazing amount of time today uh, speaking and writing, and you can uh, visit FE.org to check out some of his writing. And uh, In this segment, I want to talk a bit about a topic that I think, Larry, we talked about on this program maybe five years ago or so, and it was relating to an article that you wrote titled, Are We Rome? And some of the parallels between the Roman Empire and the Roman Republic prior to that and and the United States today are eerily similar. So maybe start a little bit by just talking about how the political structure in Rome uh, evolved over time. Okay, you're right. Those parallels uh, to present-day America are, in many respects, fascinating. It's important to remember that uh, Rome as a society lasted uh, for a thousand years, first as a republic, about 500 years, and then uh, as an imperial autocracy, a tyranny that we call the Roman Empire. I think the parallels with America are most striking when you look at that first 500 years, the republic. Uh, Just like America, Rome was founded as a republic. Uh, In Rome's case, that was about 508 B.C. Uh, They had just thrown off a monarchy, as we did, and the Roman people were so fed up with uh, one-man rule that they created a new regime that would minimize the concentration of power. Uh, they, They were going to have two people at the top, not one. They were called uh, consuls. Each one would serve only a year, uh, and then they wanted them out of there. And the decisions of one could be vetoed by the other, so they were hamstrung by by that and by other restrictions on what they could do. And the Romans also created, at the same time, popularly elected assemblies. They created the famous Roman Senate. And for 500 years, until it all fell apart, uh, Romans enjoyed a degree of personal liberty that few societies up to that date had. It wasn't perfect. They had slavery, for instance. Uh, But when you measure the freedom of the Roman Republic against the freedom of any other society at the time or before, it looks pretty darn good. So as um, the Republic... um went 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 on and and time passed larry uh what are some of the things that that happened that ultimately led to the demise of the republic well one of the things that figures prominently in this whole story is uh how romans held their leaders accountable in the first few hundred years of the republic uh the romans were pretty clear they would not countenance anybody who got to the top positions and tried to make himself from there into some kind of a king uh, who tried to concentrate power more than what the Roman constitution allowed. Um, uh, that, that was a, uh, f- a firing offense, you might say. But after a while, uh, Romans kind of lost a, a reverence and respect for those old principles. And so there were power-hungry leaders who would get to the top and begin to say things like, hey, you know, I'm supposed to be out of here in a year, but uh, I think you really need me, so let me hang on for another year. And grudgingly, Romans would say, well, okay. Uh, And that was the attitude increasingly toward many aspects of the Roman Constitution. Uh, If a guy came to power and thought that, well, 
you know, we don't need to follow what it says. We can do this. We can do that. Uh, anyway, uh, Romans increasingly said, okay, if it gets me something now, uh, then uh, I'll take it. And so you had the rise of the Roman welfare state uh, late during the Republic when increasingly Roman officials would buy the support of their voters by promising them something at public expense once elected. And finally, that became so expensive, uh, it, it uh, led to a financial paralysis, high taxes, high debt, and a crumbling of the uh, economic infrastructure of Rome. Uh, that contributed mightily to the demise of the Republic. And ultimately, people were happy to give up their freedoms uh, for the sake of having a strong man bring order out of all the chaos. So, Larry, when you take a look at the state of just the Social Security and Medicare systems today, when you combine uh, that with the national debt, in fact, I think uh, Professor Lawrence Kalikoff, who was on the program not long ago, estimates the fiscal gap of the United States is $200 trillion plus. That is an unsustainable amount, not unlike what you just described in the Roman Republic, so are, is our debt, are our fiscal issues going to lead to political change here, in your view, like they did in, in Rome? Well, they certainly could. And if, they are, if the uh, financial uh, problem that we have, uh, as evidenced by massive deficits and mounting uh, national debt, if those things are not addressed and reversed, then I would expect at some point uh, that they'll have uh, massive political repercussions. These trends of trillion-dollar deficits uh, and of $23 trillion in national debt rising by a trillion a year, uh, these are not sustainable. And at some point, uh, uh, the bill will come due in the form of uh, crushing taxation or uh, people not any longer buying our debt uh, and uh, pressures on the government to inflate and debauch the currency in order to pay the bills. All of that economic chaos uh, inevitably leads to political chaos, and out of that you rarely get a, a good outcome. You usually get some strong man who uh, knocks heads together uh, to bring order out of the chaos, and there go your liberties. So, Larry, when you when you take a look at just the political scene here in the United States, uh, arguably, you know, if you look at the last uh, election cycle, the, the the 2016 election cycle. Uh, we have a president, uh, Donald Trump, and we had uh, a candidate like Bernie Sanders that uh, figured very prominently in the in the election. I mean, if you go back 20 years, these would have been fringe candidates, in my view, that probably wouldn't have gotten nearly that kind of support. So are we already seeing a bit of a political shift to maybe more of the extreme? We certainly are seeing that in one of the major political parties, uh, the Democratic Party, but even the Republican Party has lost its... Uh, uh, desire to, uh, uh, to gather the fiscal reins and, and uh, bring uh, discipline to the federal budget. So both parties are falling over themselves to spend like crazy, uh, buying elections in the process. Uh, again, that's not sustainable, uh, but it, it certainly has its echoes uh, in ancient Rome. Uh, they did the same thing. They even had uh, inflation. We do it differently than they did it. We do it with paper money, but in those days they had uh, gold and silver coinage. But increasingly, to pay the bills of a profligate government, uh, the Roman uh, officials would call in the coins of the realm, melt them down, mix in cheaper junk metals, 
so as to have a larger mass from which to make more and more coin, but it meant that each one was worth less and less. So they destroyed their currency in the process of paying their bills, and we're doing the same thing, maybe in a bit of a, a slow-motion fashion, but it's the same process of uh, fiscal indiscipline followed by uh, a resort to the printing press, to, to money creation, to pay our bills, and it, it just never ends well. So, Larry, is it possible in the case uh, of the United States to actually reverse this, or are we, like Rome, too far down the road? No, it can be reversed. Uh, these are things that are functions of people's ideas. If their ideas change, they, the policies can change. The course of history can be changed. If people today or tomorrow or within a few years were to be well enough uh, 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 educated in ideas of individual liberty and sound money and, and uh, balanced budgets and, and limited government, they would demand that their politicians stop this reckless uh, uh, fiscal uh, policy. And that could reverse things. But if people don't uh, change their thinking, and if they continue to vote for politicians who promise more at other people's expense, including their grandchildren, uh, then uh, there's going to be some kind of awful uh, political and economic reckoning down the road. Right now, with the debt and deficit uh, as big as they are, you would think that presidential candidates would be screaming to the to the rafters, hey, we can't promise more things until we get this fiscal uh, situation under control. But they're doing just the opposite. <laughs> they all have a laundry list of things they want to spend hundreds of billions of additional dollars on, and they don't seem to care where the money's going to come from. Well, this might be a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a hot button type question, Larry. But you know, you mentioned in the Roman Empire that as the welfare state expanded, that um, you know the, the the leaders were able to to, to buy more elections. And it seems, uh, as you said that, I made a note that you know people tended to get maybe more apathetic as they were as long as they were getting their benefit from the government and somebody else was paying for it, they became more apathetic as to the big picture. Uh, do you agree with that assessment? Oh, yeah, uh, there was a lot of that, uh, especially uh, if, uh, you know, why speak out, certainly why speak out against the very entity that increasingly is providing you with your livelihood? So, in effect, the welfare state sort of buys the silence of a lot of people by uh, saying, here, we'll give you stuff, and uh, so don't rock the boat. That's uh, one of the terrible things of the welfare state. It, it tends to silence good people. Good people stop running for public office, too. The bigger and more corrupt uh, the government becomes, the more that good people won't uh, have anything to do with it anymore. I mean, how many times today have we heard people say that? Good people you'd like to see in government say, it's become such nasty business, why would I want to drag my name through the mud? So what we end up with is... Uh, uh, the worst of both worlds, bad people running big government. So, Larry, in your view, what was the final straw that broke the proverbial camel's back in the case of the Roman Republic? I think if there was one, one moment where you could say that's when the Republic effectively ended, I mean, you could cite a number of things. Julius Caesar being named emperor for life, although it only lasted a month before he was assassinated. But I think it would be uh, the assassination of Cicero. He was the last most outspoken uh, defender of the old republic and its virtues of freedom. He was opposed to the concentration of power and all this reckless spending. 
But when Mark Antony, who succeeded Julius Caesar, had Cicero assassinated, that silenced the last uh, courageous public voice against all this stuff. And of course, within a matter of years, you get the first emperor and the official end of the old Roman Republic. Well, there is a lesson there, and unfortunately, the clock tells me we have to stop. Our guest today has been Mr. Larry Reed. You can read uh, his many articles at FEE.org. And uh, Larry, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Dennis. We will be back after these words. I am Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. Glad you're listening today. Hey, there is some crazy activity going on in Denmark. And I'm talking about activity in the banking sector. Let me just give you a bit from an article that was published this past week. Denmark's third largest bank announced last week that it is offering 10-year mortgages at a rate of negative 0.5%. Another Danish bank, a competitor, quickly followed suit, stating that it will offer 20-year fixed-rate mortgages with 0% interest, as well as 30-year mortgages at 0.5% interest. And this was reported on Bloomberg. Now, Negative interest rates make it sound like the borrowers will actually be paid to take out a mortgage rather than pay the bank interest. That may not always be the case, to be fair, because bankers do add fees to these loans. But negative interest rates in general, as crazy as it seems, are a sign that lenders are wary of where the markets are headed. Some banks are willing to take smaller losses now, by offering low or negative interest rates rather than risking borrowers taking out higher interest loans that they won't be able to pay back in the future. Now, an analyst by the name of Lisa Bergman, who is a chief analyst at uh, Nordea's, which is uh, one of the Danish banks that is offering 0.5% interest for 30 years, had this to say. It's an uncomfortable thought that there are investors who are willing to lend money for 30 years and get just a 0.5% return. It shows how scared investors are of the current situation in the financial markets and that they expect it to take a very long time before things improve. Well, as we have been talking about here on the program over the past few weeks, it is a crazy world that we live in, financially speaking. The current global monetary policy is negative interest rates and currency devaluation. You know, each week I track the value of the U.S. dollar index. Now, the U.S. dollar index tracks the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar against the purchasing power of the currencies of the six major trading partners of the United States. Now, when this index goes up, when the U.S. dollar index rises, it doesn't necessarily mean that the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar is increasing. It's just holding up better. It's a relative measurement. 
the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar is not increasing on an absolute basis. Now, Mr. Egon von Greyerts, who was recently interviewed on King World News, had this to say on the topic. He said, most people don't understand that the value of their money in their pocket is deteriorating all the time. They live under the illusion that prices are going up, which is totally erroneous. It is not prices that are going up, but the value of money, which is declining. The example of a house going up 50-fold in 48 years is a good illustration. In real terms, the house has not gone up in value at all. It is the value of the money that has declined in all countries since 1971 when Nixon closed the gold window. Now, if you are not familiar with what happened in 1971, prior to 1971, the U.S. dollar was exchangeable directly for gold at a rate of $35 an ounce. However, during the 1960s, because the U.S. had printed too many dollars and didn't have enough gold to back them all, President Nixon closed the gold window. He stopped the redemptions of U.S. dollars for gold directly. In fact, he went on television and said that he was going to preserve the integrity of the U.S. dollar and temporarily suspend these redemptions of U.S. dollars for gold. However, those re- those redemptions have never resumed. So since 1971, the U.S. dollar has been a fiat currency like almost every other currency in the world. Now, Mr. Von Greyerts published a table, and he showed that currencies have really lost a lot of value, and he used gold once again as the metric or the measuring stick. The U.S. dollar... In 1971, it took 35 U.S. dollars to buy an ounce of gold. Today, it takes 1,500. That's about a 98% decline in currency. British pound, euros, Swiss francs all tell you about the same thing. Although since 1971, the Swiss franc has lost only 90% of its purchasing power versus 98% here in the United States. Venezuela, since 2000, it took 180 units of the Venezuelan currency in 2000 to buy an ounce of gold. Today, it takes 357 million. They've lost 99.999% of their purchasing power. Now, history tells us that currency devaluation is a slippery slope, and as we just heard from Mr. Larry Reed, History often repeats itself. Now, when you look at global debt levels today, global debt levels are simply staggering. Global debt levels are now approaching $250 trillion and rose by $3 trillion in the first quarter of this year alone. That's significant. Those debt levels cannot be paid with honest money, which leaves only two options. One, default on the debt, or two, create currency. Now, since easy money and currency creation have been the preferred policies to this point, I expect they will continue to be the preferred policies. And they will work, these policies, until they don't. That's profound, isn't it? They'll work until they won't, and then the reset will come. 
And at the reset point, whenever that happens to be, tangible assets and assets with links to tangible assets will be needed to survive and to prosper. That's why we advocate a two-bucket approach that is outlined in the New Retirement Rules book, which you can get by going to Amazon and just searching for New Retirement Rules. You could also attend one of our events where we talk about the two-bucket approach. We talk about maximizing Social Security and minimizing taxes on retirement accounts under the current law. If you want to learn about our next event, all you have to do is go to rla.socialsecuritydinner.com. That's rla.socialsecuritydinner.com. Our educational events are offered at no cost. Uh, However, we do require tickets. They are free, so you can request your tickets at rla.socialsecuritydinner.com. That's our program for this week. Certainly hope you got something you can use, and I'll be back here again next week, same time. Hope you'll be here too. Have a great week.